Welcome to this edition of On Politics. We are glad you're joining us today, and we are right here on KTRL 90.5 FM at Tarleton State University on Sundays at noon. So we're glad you're with us again this week, and we want to encourage you to follow us on Facebook, see related articles to the stories that we cover each week, as well as listen on SoundCloud. So if you ever miss an episode of the show or you want to go back and look at our previous episodes, uh, they are posted on SoundCloud. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow. And they're also available wherever you get your podcasts. So you can listen to us at your convenience uh, during the week or to look back at some of the topics that we've covered. This week, we want to welcome back to the show Dr. Cal Gilson. Uh, Dr. Gilson is a professor of political science at Southern Methodist University and also is a commentator on politics, state and national politics in a number of places on a regular basis, including uh, regional media, the Dallas Morning News, San Antonio Express News, as well as uh, some of our our national uh, news networks. And I always like to talk Texas politics because uh, uh, Dr. Gilson has a, a great book, Lone Star Tarnished, which actually provides a a lot of good background as well as critical issues related to policy areas, uh, which is something we really focus on here at Tarleton with our work in our government classes and trying to teach students how to be more engaged in in what's going on around them. Uh, But today I I wanted to to talk to him about the recent election uh, because here we are now uh, two and a half months away uh, past the election and some of the things that people were either anticipating or were wanting to happen didn't really happen uh, in terms of uh, more party transition in Texas or uh, just some of the, the outcomes were just not uh, as expected, or, ma- or maybe they were. We're going to try to clarify some of that today. But in looking at those outcomes in the Texas election and how that impacted or will impact the work of the legislature and governance in Texas, Uh, going forward. Uh, So, Cal, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Eric. It's good to be back. So I wanted to to start out with just a a general statement on the election, and and that was uh, seeing the the fact that uh, Democrats in Texas were hoping for more gains uh, in the Texas legislature to see kind of moving along a, a, a very slow continuum here of having more seats in the legislature and more impact on on state politics. And, and, and that just didn't happen with this election. And I think one of the I guess the first place I went to with this would be, well, what did the presidential election? What what impact did that have on turnout or or, or was that really a factor uh, in this election that that that? caused the outcome that we saw. I, I think that's where a, a initial question I have here, because it was a presidential election. There were a lot of national dynamics going on. Uh, is, is that all we need to look at? Or did you see some other things that that uh, uh, were certainly an impact on this election? Yeah, I think there were two things, really. One of them is if you step back and and remember how well Democrats did in 2018, They picked up 12 seats in the Texas legislature, a couple of U.S. House seats, a lot of local offices. And so they thought that that momentum out of 2018 was going to continue unabated through 2020. And that if they picked up nine more Texas House seats, that they'd have a majority and a seat at the table for redistricting. So I think the fact that they did so well in 2018 picked some of the low-hanging fruit and didn't leave that much room for them to do quite as well in 2020. And really they picked up nothing in the Texas House, Senate, uh, the US House. And I think that shocked a lot of people. I was saying that I expect them to pick up a little bit, probably not the nine they needed, but you know, three, four, five would be certainly possible. And that didn't happen. And I do think the presidential election had, had something to do with it. In, in a couple of different ways. One of them is that the excitement generated both positive and negative by Donald Trump's candidacy drove Texas turnout to absolutely unprecedented levels. Uh, we are usually among the lowest voter turnout states 
in the nation. And we were still among the lowest in 2020, but at a much higher level. Everybody moved up, including Texas. Uh, but, uh, but Donald Trump only carried Texas by about six points. He carried it by nine points in 2016. And McCain and uh, Romney carried it by 12 or 15 in the elections before that. So the Republican margin is coming down. And I think Trump was a cause both of high turnout and of uh, that narrow margin, which means that Republicans didn't pick much up, but neither did Democrats. Uh, looking back at 2018, and and does it tell us that when we look at these presidential elections, uh, in terms of that cycle, uh, that that this is a lot more complex in terms of the transition? I, I, I know we've had this conversation over the years, and of course, it's always out there in the news media about is Texas turning blue? Uh, I think that's died down a little bit over uh, the past couple of cycles, but there's there seems to be a complexity here in trying to understand this transition in Texas. And I don't know if you had some really insight into that of looking at, you know, what more has to be understood about it, that it's, I guess part of it is building from one election to the next, but then there's other dynamics that come into play here. But we also know that there are things happening within the population in general, in terms of party affiliation. What what do you see broadens our understanding of that political transition in the state that, that people really need to be aware of? Yeah, I think that there are broad demographic changes taking place uh, in Texas, and they've been taking place for a long time. If you go back to, say, 1970, the population was 70% Anglo, you know, about you know 12% Black and Hispanic, a very small Asian population at that point. And now we're at about 40, 41% Anglo and the same uh, Hispanic Blacks, about 12, and Asians have come up uh, to, to about six. So the question is, if Anglos vote, say, 70% Republican, which is pretty close to what they do, and Hispanics traditionally had voted two to one Democrat, Asians did the same thing, and Blacks had voted nine or 10 to one Democrat, wasn't it almost inevitable that as the population mix changed, that electoral outcomes would become closer as more Democrat-leaning uh, demographic groups grew in the population? And the, the broad answer to that uh, is yes, but that's not the only thing happening. You, you also have uh, you know, some election cycles that seem to lean toward one party or the other. You have candidates that might be particularly effective given one cycle and different candidates in the next one. So I think when, when Democrats looked at 2018, they thought that the gains they made were a result of, of demographic change and, and that they would inevitably continue. But much of what happened in 2018 was better. You know, and the fact that, that he was a compelling candidate, he raised $70 million, he pumped turnout up somewhat, and that helped carry some Democrats in in a, in a midterm uh, uh, midterm election cycle, which usually benefits the out party from the presidency. So you know, the, it, it's hard to say, you know, exactly what percentage of the result in 2018 uh, was an effect of of betomania. What part of it was demographic? But I think it does suggest that elections uh, don't don't occur in a straight line. There are lots of things going on. One election might have immigration as the key issue. The next one might have healthcare as a key issue. Immigration might benefit Republicans, healthcare Democrats. So uh, a lot going on in any election cycle. We, we were following the uh, election in House District 25 of the state legislature with uh, Jamie Oliver and Roger Williams because there was a lot of even national focus on that in terms of uh, how the, how does this look as a uh, both rural, very rural, because it included areas like where I'm from in Bosque County, uh, where you're, you know, you're talking in the thousands in population to um, uh, Burleson, uh, all the way down to the to Austin uh, and, and catching some of the suburbs, but going on into Austin, really interesting shaped district uh, where you had seen 
uh, some tightening. Uh, and, and of course, it was a lot closer, even in this election, it's a lot closer than many other uh, districts throughout the state, uh, but but really just did not, uh, there was no gain in ground by the Democrat, by Jamie Oliver in this election. In fact, it seemed like she lost a little bit of ground. And uh, part of this, I think, was looking at the fact that districts like that you did have higher turnout in some of the, the rural areas, but then understanding where these suburbs are, uh, like of Tarrant County, where you know uh, uh, Burleson is just partially in Tarrant County and, and and partially in Johnson County, and the suburbs of Austin. And to me, there seems to be much more of a complexity there in understanding the electorate in Texas. I was talking with a radio station in Ohio, and you know you have Toledo, and you have Cleveland, and you have Cincinnati. We have Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Houston, but then we also have all these uh, mid-sized cities uh, that are 100, 200,000, and that adds a different layer of complexity to this in, in, in Texas. I didn't know if you, you know, in looking at, at some of that data and, and what, what your thoughts are in trying to understand that going forward, I would assume it's going to have a huge impact on redistricting because they're going to look, those suburbs of those metropolitan areas are going to become very uh, uh, critical in terms of their makeup of, of the electorate and party affiliation. Yeah, I think that's right. It's still the case that that when you look at the maps uh, that are produced in the wake of the election, you've got those blueberries there, which are Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, even out in, in El Paso, uh, and then a sea of red. And uh, in, in 2018, in particular, that blue purple crept out into the inner ring suburbs and Colin all red. Uh, won a seat from Pete Sessions in, in the northern suburbs, the inner northern suburbs of, of Dallas, and Lizzie Fletcher won a, a seat down in Houston uh, that is sort of the southwest suburbs of, of Houston out in the direction of the old Tom DeLay uh, district. So some suburban voters uh, looked at Donald Trump and were a little bit put off by him and moved in 2018 in very visible ways, much less of that uh, in 2020. And the districts that people thought would be the next set that would go Democrat were often adjacent to the ones that uh, went Democrat in, in 2018. And so you've got a mid-cities uh, district up here in, uh, uh, in North Texas that Beth Van Dyne, the Republican candidate, beat Candace Valenzuela in. It was thought to be a very close race. And I think Van Dyne ended up winning that by a comfortable five or six points. And similar things happen all over Texas. So while, while what people look at is, is change in the suburbs uh, in a Democrat direction, uh, a lot of that is driven by Trump. But I think people are also looking at a deepening divide between urban and rural areas where the East Texas and West Texas, principally uh, rural parts of the state, went three to one. Uh, Trump, 75-25, just big margins. And no matter what the cities do, even if they have a little bit better uh, uh, result in the suburbs, you've still got all of those mid-size areas that you you were talking about that are not yet uh, moving visibly in a in a Democrat direction, they feel much more uh, like exurbs and beyond exurbs out into more rural areas because they're surrounded uh, by those uh, those kinds of territories and and voters. So I think the thing that that I'm looking at there's there's a couple things. The book that I'm reading right now uh, is uh, is called Blue Metros Red States the shifting urban-rural divide in America's swing states. So there's a lot of focus on that. It's a Brookings Institution uh, book. And then I've just seen any number of articles uh, driven by the Trump results of Trump doing so well in the rural areas and doing poorly uh, in the cities that people are thinking about uh, the, the, the makeup of states. So, so is, do you think this election uh, 
brings a, a little bit of, of confusion to this, this kind of line that, that, that we've always looked at as to how fast is this transition taking place in Texas is now we, we look ahead. Are we saying, well, we probably have a lot more uncertainty or, uh, you know, what do you see here? I know as political scientists, we're, we, we try to shy away from making predictions here and we try to correct those who do in terms of how they're looking at, at issues and say, well, there's more variables here than, than uh, meet the eye. But this is an ongoing conversation. And, it, and, and in the general conversation, it's like, well, look, it's, it's not going anywhere because this last election, well, we've got less than two years now. We'll have midterm elections, which are statewide with governor and, and others running. Uh, so outside of uh, a Beto O'Rourke or a Donald Trump, because he's still not out of the picture. Uh, what what where do you see with this in terms of, of, of transition? Is is this uh, do you think we're going to be moving to looking at it in, in more complex ways and, and maybe even down to just actual districts and and so forth? Or can we make any statements looking at it statewide? Yeah, I think that the, uh, neither Donald Trump nor Beto O'Rourke are out of it yet. Trump was meeting, as you well know, and your listeners will probably know, with Kevin McCarthy, the, the minority leader in the House, making plans for the 2022 midterms with McCarthy wanting to apologize for Trump from some of the things that, that he said and make sure they're on the same page. And Beto and, uh, and Greg Abbott have been sniping at each other over the course of the last 24 hours with uh, Beto saying he may run for governor in 2022 and Abbott saying, come on, that'd be fun. Uh, so uh, he said, remember this guy said he's going to take away your guns is the first thing that, that Abbott said. So uh, I think the main thing that surprised me in 2020 is I, I, I'm one of those that, that, that does put some stock in the in the general tendency of demographic change uh, uh, in a Democrat direction. But what happened in 2020 is that Hispanic voters in Texas performed in a more Republican way than they traditionally did. Uh, and that is not new in Texas at all. If you, when you were growing up uh, in, uh, in Bosque County, you might not have been watching politics all that closely, but if you had been, you would have seen that John Tower used to win 40% of the Hispanic vote and uh, sometimes a little more than more than that. Uh, George W. Bush uh, would bring out his, his mother-in-law, he'd speak a little uh, Spanish himself and go ahead and win 40, 45%. Uh, and so it's not uncommon in Texas history for Republicans to be able to pull 40% plus usually it's about a two to one split between Democrats and Republicans with Republicans getting about a third. Uh, and uh, in 2020, the Hispanic vote in Texas was more like 58, 59 to 41, 42, something like that. And so, as you know, elections are won on the margins. You don't have to win a group that you, you normally don't do that well in, but if you usually lose them 65-35 and you only lose them 58-42, uh, that could be a percent on the, on the general election uh, margin. So Republicans did very well, and Donald Trump did very well among Republicans and I think what caught people's eye was particularly in the ballot and particularly those overwhelmingly Hispanic uh, communities that see a lot of movement back and forth across the border that are not mixed with a lot of Anglos uh, and others. They are Hispanic communities. Some of them have been there for a very long time. And the ways and traditions and habits are, are more traditional Hispanic than they are sort of Hispanics living in Dallas or Fort Worth or, or Houston. And so Trump resonated uh, in those communities uh, on immigration, because there's always been a concern that immigration is going to drive down wages, and those would be our wages, since we're the ones already here. Uh, and so I, I think that was a surprise. And the question is whether or not other candidates uh, can continue uh, to lose Hispanics more narrowly 
than they've traditionally lost them because that Hispanic community is, is soon this year or next to be the biggest uh, demographic community in Texas. The turnout is still uh, only about 60% as high among Hispanics as it is among Anglos and Blacks, but that will presumably come up slowly over the years. And as that Hispanic community grows, if it stays two to one Democrat, that brings on democratic competitiveness. But if it falls into the you know high 50s, 40s, even 55, 45, that could extend the Republican majority statewide for quite a while. So turning uh, here to the Texas legislature, which is in session now, uh, the I was a little bit uh, taken off guard, I guess, in a way, when uh, some of the things that came out even after this election and, and Republicans held on uh, to to what they had, which is uh, clearly a majority in, in both chambers, uh, that uh, the tone would be might, be might be a little more aggressive. And, and you hear it from some quarters and so forth, but with the new uh, House Speaker and there seems to be at least starting out. And of course, we've seen past legislative sessions where at least at the start, everybody's congenial and, hey, you know, we're going to get along and work together. And this may be a, a, a part uh, 87 of that, if we want to put it that way. But but it seemed like that there there at least is is uh, a, an attempt to hark back to some of the pragmatic approaches to 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 governing and at least trying to 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 find some collaboration there. Uh, I don't know if you if you if you see that or if you you think you know this is the same song fourth verse or whatever but really the impact of this election I know it's certainly going to be on redistricting and we'll, we'll talk about that in, in a few moments but in terms of the legislature and, and governing the state is is the crisis here that we're in economic uh pandemic, so forth enough, or is it really going to be Republicans taking it, taking the lead and, and, and doing what they can and feeling confident, probably going into the midterms, I would think. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we can say, Jesus, make it so, you know, <laughs> that, that, that we have some cooperation in the Texas legislature. But if, if you think back, 2017 was the bathroom bill and was a, a very decisive, uh, uh, divisive session uh, and uh, Joe Strauss, the Speaker of the House at that time was able to slow Dan Patrick and Abbott down, but, but he paid a real price for that. In fact, he was forced out of the, uh, out of the legislature as, as a result of those, uh, those conflicts. And then in 2019, we had what was a fairly congenial legislative session where they did property tax cuts and added money to the schools and everybody says, well, now they're working on real problems and they're showing uh, some results. I think we're gonna be somewhere between those two attitudes in 2021. And, and I think what will limit some of the divisiveness is, is there's no money to fight over, right? The, the, uh, the budget is going to be very tight. I think the members will have a difficult time finding enough money uh, to follow through on the promises they made in 2019 to keep school spending uh, up. And as everyone always says, the budget is the only bill that has to pass. Uh, and they may now have a little more time to deal with coronavirus solutions or state local government relations because redistricting has really been shoved into the summer because the census uh, counts will not be available until at least April. And usually you get those in December, January preliminarily, and then end of February or so you get the final figures and the legislature can do the redistricting, uh, certainly um, take a first cut at it, uh, but that's not gonna be possible this time. So they'll either have to have special sessions or let the legislative redistricting uh, board take care of it, which is an all Republican five member group. So there's going to be fighting over redistricting, but I think it's going to be pushed mainly beyond the regular session. So that will allow uh, Dave Phelan, the new speaker, uh, to try to uh, be sure that they get a budget uh, in a predictable way and then notch a couple of other victories on coronavirus, maybe uh, school funding, something like that. So I don't expect pitch battles 
but you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to uh, you know one for you, one for me if there's no money for that stuff. Right, right. Well, on on redistricting because it does relate directly to elections and what we're talking about. Uh, yes, with the delays and 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 that may have benefit the legislative session with not having that in the mix, but but its impact uh, on politics in the state for the next decade is is significant. And that's why I think this election was so significant in that uh, Republicans held their ground and then the, they'll be leading that process of redistricting, which we know takes two or three years, depending on courts and how they're involved and what ha- what they have to go through with the with the maps. But um, I think for our listeners, it's a, it's important to understand that process and how uh, critical it is, but also how political it is in 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 terms of shaping uh, those those districts uh, in in the years ahead and and how that kind of factors into this transition in the state. Um, and, and while we don't know at this point what kind of maps we'll be looking at uh, because of the, you know, the state has grown significantly. It's grown in, in many areas and other areas it's not. So we know those maps are going to change considerably. Uh, but, but when we're looking at, at, at this election and, and its significance related to redistricting, um, what, what do you, what do you see? I mean, in, in looking ahead and, and, talking about the kind of impact of this redistricting process and, and what it may do to uh, either uh, make this more challenging in terms of a political change in the state, or uh, is this something that, that uh, may hold us in a certain pattern or certain way for this next decade? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, redistricting is critical. It's highly political. Uh, and the, the results of the 2020 elections left Republicans in almost complete control of redistricting because they have all the statewide offices and they have majorities in both the Texas House and the Senate. And while we don't know exactly how redistricting is going to go once the numbers come in for 2020, we can look back at the numbers after 2010 when, when Texas had four new U.S. House seats. We had 32 and it moved to 36. And so you had to redraw all the boundaries. Republicans were in control then as well. And they drew the boundaries in such a way as to try to limit the number of Democratic U.S. House districts, Texas House and Senate districts, and maximize the number of Republican districts. Uh, And you do that very carefully. You don't make them all 51-49 because then every, every little bounce uh, in turnout can can uh, can lead to some loss of Republican seats. You do 55-45, even 56-44. Uh, but over the course of the decade after 2010, those district boundaries became less and less efficient because demographic change, both growth in the Hispanic uh, electorate, people moving in from other parts of the country, so that by the end of that decade, you were getting a dozen Texas House seats going to the Democrats, two U.S. House seats uh, in the suburbs going to the Democrats. So in 2020, what the Republicans will do is they will try to shore up their majorities and make sure that those majorities hold and are safe. But four, five, six years out, that same deterioration in efficiency of the districts drawn after the 2020 numbers become available, will begin to show itself, and it will become increasingly difficult uh, for those districts to hold. And then the question is, well, think about after 2030, are you going to be able to draw districts that will give you a compelling Republican uh, majority? So I think that the fact that 2020 was was a, a hold harmless year where Republicans held everything, lost control of nothing so that the Democrats don't really have a seat at the table in redistricting. They can complain, but they can't draw the lines themselves. Means that Republicans get to draw the best set of lines that they can configure, even knowing that over the coming decade, those lines will become less efficient from the Republican Party's perspective. Now that's going to make for an interesting, not only redistricting process, but the looking ahead for the next decade with all these these factors and things in place that are happening all over the state. I, 
sometimes when in teaching Texas government and, 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 and federal government, but to be in Texas uh, and, and then uh, talk to people in, in other states and they're asking questions and trying to make comparisons, it seems like we have so many different dynamics, aspects, variables, however you want to put it, that are that are uh, feeding politics in this state that make it a very interesting uh, state to to be in and to and to work in and and I, as always I appreciate your analysis uh, this is a great in depth look at some of these things that helps uh, our listeners understand uh, how how these things work the complexity of it of it but how engaging it can be to watch it and to uh, see where we're going uh, in the state of Texas so thank you again for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. For me, it's just a good political conversation. Yes, uh, yes. So I, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, always good conversation. It's Dr. Cal Gilson, a political science professor at Southern Methodist University. And we'll, all, we'll look forward to the opportunity. We can, maybe at the end of the legislative session, we can uh, get back together and uh, see what, what came out of this. I was surprised, uh, uh, and I guess some people may have been, this hasn't happened too often in the past, where the House and Senate uh, came out with similar versions of, uh, of the budget, uh, which either means uh, we may for once see a budget passed before the end of uh, mid to end of May, uh, or it may mean that uh, it's going to be a, a drawn out process, but we'll, we'll just have to see. Thank you again for joining me today. All right. Thank you, Eric. Always a pleasure. All right. We'll take a quick break and we will be right back for more on politics. Politics can be confusing, but On Politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. T for Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State, and I want to thank again Dr. Cal Gilson from Southern Methodist for joining us. Uh, he has been a scholar and, and analyst of Texas politics for a number of years and, of course, has a great uh, book that looks at various policy issues and their background and challenges in those areas when we know that in Texas, a lot of it is related to resources and how those resources are used. And so what I want to do as we're going through the uh, uh, this uh, time of year and, in fact, the with the 87th Texas legislature meeting and the budget being a primary focus of what they do, uh, that uh, uh, at least uh, every other week or as things happen uh, throughout this legislative session to keep you updated on that budget process. And so we know that it it is off and going, um, that the legislative budget board uh, has been doing its work uh, prior to the session, uh, that the comptroller uh, has been doing his work in estimating revenues, which is really the starting point uh, for this budget process. And so I'll post some things on uh, Facebook. Uh, there's a great uh, budget primer that gives you all of the information that you need to understanding this process and the steps that it goes through. And then we'll highlight some of those on the show uh, as we go through the state budget process. And I think that's very critical for us to be aware uh, not only of how this works, because it is an interesting process, it has a, a lot of uh, different facets to it, but it's also important in following how the state uses uh, the resources uh, of the people. Uh, we already know that our state budget is made up of general revenue that comes in through various taxes and fees. Uh, we know that there are investments. We also know that there is federal money that comes in as well. And we'll be breaking some of that down a little more in depth uh, to try to understand some of that as we go along. But I do want to take just a moment here before we move to our final segment of the show uh, to uh, acknowledge another step in the process that has happened. And that was the proposed budgets coming out of the Senate and the House. So as you already know, the, the process of, of regular bills, that the bills have to come out of both chambers 
And then there has to be a conference committee if necessary in order to work out any differences uh, between uh, the two bills. But already in terms of the budget bill, the House and Senate have come forward with proposed budgets uh, that are exactly the same in spending, at least in the total amount of spending. So that is $119.7 billion in general revenue for the next two fiscal years. Uh, which uh, many in, in, in reporting on this have said, well, you have some at least some agreement here to start with. Maybe there's not going to be as much conflict on the major elements. And as was said in the first segment of the show in our conversation with Cal Gilson, uh, that the uh, pandemic and the revenue challenges of the state uh, may have something uh, to do with that. The only problem here, or challenge really, a major challenge, is that this budget is $7 billion over the amount that the state comptroller said that lawmakers have to spend. So uh, there's a shortfall here of revenue at this point, a lot of it, most of it to do with the pandemic and the uh, the un- unemployment, the decline in general revenue, the decline in oil and gas revenue. I mean, there's there's lots of areas that have been hit because of the pandemic. And so $7 billion is a shortfall that is going to have to be, be made up in, in somehow, uh, some way, either one, in cutting the budget, which is uh, the first approach, is to cut the budget and to bring it back down to the estimated revenue, because it has to be a balanced budget, or... Uh, it is to combine that with cuts and supplementing it from the rainy day fund. Now, we don't know what the financial picture will be by the end of the legislative session. So that could be a factor as well. So that if things were to improve on the revenue front and the predictions of revenue, that that could align with the increase in the budget. But for now, we have that there, there would be a shortfall that that's not possible then it ha- that funding has to come uh, from somewhere. And with the, the state's uh, general revenue estimated at, at $112.5 billion for the 2022 and 2023 fiscal year, uh, that that this projection is what has to guide the process at this point. Of course, there's still a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uncertainty of whether things will improve or not uh, in the months ahead as uh, the uh, pandemic is addressed and, and its long-term impact more visible. Uh, but uh, uh, this is a critical time in that budget process. And the, there's a number of needs, uh, certainly in terms of uh, school funding uh, with all the challenges there due to the pandemic. And they're going to be looking at some of these areas and deciding priorities. And that, that doesn't mean that the budget is locked into place at this point uh, in that uh uh, there could be some shifting, and we don't know where those things are going to take place. So we can start to get some idea here in the weeks ahead as we move forward and as the as the committees uh, from the House and the Senate begin to work on this and try to, to move it into some form. But we know that that, that most likely uh, that the actual approval of the budget, or at least finishing it in the legislature and sending it to the governor, will happen uh, late in the session uh, so that maybe they can have a better uh, handle on uh, that uncertainty. Um, so a couple of other things just about the budget uh, that the finance committees uh, in, in both uh, are wanting to emphasize that they're concerned about the state economy. Of course, most uh, state officials are as well. Uh, and that means that be, they want to address things specifically to uh, the economy and what keeps the economy moving or growing or gets it back on track. And, and so that that's where a lot of the debate will come in. Uh, there'll be debate uh, coming from both sides of the aisle, from Republicans and Democrats, uh, trying to address their concerns about whether resources are going to help constituents, uh, what resources are going to the economy, what's getting neglected uh, in a time of, of significant challenge in the pandemic. Uh, so, so there's a lot of work to be done in the in the days and weeks and really the months ahead as the budget will need to pass through both uh, the committees and in the chambers 
and and then of course moved to that level where the Senate and the House work together uh, to get this uh, in a final form. So we'll be bringing you regular updates. Like I said, I'll post a couple of things for uh, reading online that will help you understand kind of the background to this process, how Texas does budgeting, and I would encourage you to engage with that. And then it will connect to that. Uh, the news that we bring to you each semester uh, so that we see what's happening with it and where are areas that may be are going to be pulled back some, what are areas that are going to be expanded, where are the resources going to come from uh, to cover this budget uh, for the next cycle. Uh, before I turn to the final segment, I do want to let you know that uh, I'm looking forward to having um, uh, Dr. Brian Jones from the University of Texas join us next week uh, to talk about power sharing in the U.S. Congress. You've probably heard a lot of things, or if, you, if you've been tuned in, about the discussion going on between uh, now Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Minority Leader, Leader Mitch McConnell in the Senate, which is that most powerful body in the U.S. Congress, uh, about power sharing arrangement. And this relates to the filibuster. It relates to committees. And so this is behind the scenes politics here. Uh, but I want to dig into it a little bit more because there, the, the Senate plays a very critical role in the legislative process. And it's going to be even more critical in, in these first uh, two years of the Biden presidency, given the way that the Senate is arranged, the fact that you have a 50-50 split here uh, between Democrats, independents, and Republicans, that you have a vice president who's a Democrat, who is the president of the Senate, who can uh, break tie votes on specific things. Uh, so I wanted to give some attention to that just to, to get some background and help you have some understanding in, in what really goes on, what is going on in terms of the politics and the power uh, in the Senate uh, especially as we look at these these next two years and what the Biden administration and its plans, its agenda, and what it's going to try to accomplish. So in this last segment, I do want to go back to the Biden administration. Uh, we spent some time on the show in the past few months talking about uh, some of the critical areas and who Joe Biden was bringing on board uh, to address things. We looked at the economic team. I know we've talked a little bit about the health team, but I did want to go back to that and, and look at a few other things because we see the that as the Biden administration is, is settling in here, uh, this significant focus on trying to get the pandemic under control. And we, we're starting to see uh, some good news, uh, good news in that uh, virus cases across many states seem to now be on the downswing uh, that, that we're, we're starting to have an effect here. Uh, of course, there's been, I think, between 20, around 25 million uh, vaccinations uh, that have been given. Uh, that number continues to increase. And of course, that's one of the major focuses of the Biden administration is to get those vaccines out there. I mean, they have that commitment of 100 million vaccines in 100 days. Uh, there's uh, just really the, the the times and the challenges demand uh, an action and uh, an effort to try to get this under control uh, because of those long-term impacts. And we've talked about those on the show before, uh, especially when we look at our state and the economic impact, the unemployment impact. I mean, there's just so many facets to this. And so, uh, and not, not let alone the psychological, the physical impact. I mean, it's just all of it uh, is, is so significant. So the, the Biden administration, I just want to go back a little bit to give you background to this, because part of it is understanding policy. I'm not focused so much here on partisanship and looking at how are the Democrats doing this compared to the Republicans? How's Biden doing this compared to Trump? Uh, that That's not beneficial at this point in looking at uh, real issues and real policymaking and, and how this gets done. And it gets done with a lot of effort and work and resources. That's just the way this works in terms of something of this magnitude it's just not going to change overnight. It's just not going to swing back in a different direction because people will it. So uh, there's going to have to be action. There's going to have to be policies put in place. There's going to have to be resources put behind it. And this seems to be the approach that the Biden administration is taking. It's really 
trying to take those uh, efforts that the Trump administration began with putting resources into vaccine development uh, and moving that further along now into implementation, which again, we know was a struggle for the Trump administration. And and I've voiced my concern about that in terms of of the the networking that needed to happen with the states. You know, not that we just, okay, we got a vaccine, get it out there to the states, let them worry about the implementation. Uh, This needed to be a nationwide coordinated effort uh, in order to deliver that vaccine and to do it effectively and to do it uh, in a timely manner in order to combat the the pandemic. And so now you see the Biden team getting their feet on the ground and and starting to 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 move this forward and and trying to move it forward, building on what what had been done in the last part of the Trump administration and to really ramp it up. And of course, all this takes time. Uh, I think there were factors there that probably make this more difficult. Part of it was the information sharing between the outgoing Trump administration, the incoming Biden administration, uh, the, the the type of plan the Trump administration had. And we've heard from some that, well, there was no plan for national distribution. Well, there was some plan there, but was it effective or not? And this is when we're getting into policymaking. Again, we're aware of the politics of this. We're aware of how uh, uh, political power uh, uh, impacts it, but we're also looking at uh, the the efficiency, effectiveness of it. Is it actually meeting the challenge? Is it actually within those conditions, political, geographical, uh, whatever environment it may be in, is it actually meeting the need? And so for the Biden administration, the approach to this really started back within weeks after he was elected president. I mean, he uh, introduced a, a COVID-19 panel uh, which was made up of uh, of 52 uh, people from across the nation uh, in, in, in his transition team, but a lot of that was focused uh, on COVID-19. Uh, it was focused on trying to bring together experts, both those that, that uh, were connected to government, those that were not, uh, a number of people in uh, the medical profession in trying to develop a plan that could be implemented, uh, which is what they're trying to do now. Now that we're into the presidency, we're, we're two weeks in, uh, this is the ongoing effort is to implement this plan. But he put together this, this large panel of, of people who were meeting regularly uh, early on in his transition work uh, in order to offer information, ideas, discuss, uh, whatever they could bring, whatever expertise and whatever knowledge they could bring to the table uh, in order to help Biden administration officials and those that would be moving into positions uh, of of, uh, administration in order to uh, try to effectively deal with this. Uh, And so I think that was a good approach. I mean, I, I think Part of it was in response to knowing that it would be a struggle to work with the Trump administration. Uh, but on the other side of it, I think this was critical because it, it offered a fresh look at all of this. It, it brought together a group of people, uh, very dynamic people. And, and I'll post uh, uh, some information that offers their background and their um, uh, their uh uh, credentials in order to see that that uh, you know such a, a very impressive group uh, that came in uh, and worked with the Biden administration team. Now this is a group that was dissolved because it couldn't move into a federal advisory board. There are some people that that are moving into positions in terms of the the health team, uh, and we'll talk about those here for just a few moments. Uh, but these people served a very critical role. And that's very important in policymaking. It, these are people who are experts. These are people who are doctors, physicians. These were people who are healthcare policy people that were out there engaging with this, working with it, understanding it, trying to to advise those who were coming into power uh, about what were the steps that that needed to be done in moving forward, not focusing on what had happened in the past in terms of this didn't get done or that didn't get done or this should have been taken care of six months ago. It was here is where we are right now. Uh, how do we deal with this? How do we move forward with it? Uh, and how do we have the best effect uh, with the 
policies and the approach uh, that will be put into place. So I think part of this you have to understand for President Biden was that this was a legacy issue. You're thinking about hey, he's uh, coming in and he's got this crisis on his hands. Uh, he has to want to do something about it. He has to want to turn the tide of this, to find the solutions, to to have effective approaches. And, and I think that was very clear in his early work in putting this team together. Uh, but now he is moving forward. He is working with Congress to get his health team in place. And of course, some of those people are continuing over uh, from the Trump administration. I think the one that, that most people will be familiar with is Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is serving as, as President Biden's chief medical advisor on COVID-19. And he will he is maintaining his role as director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So we've seen Dr. Fauci, everyone knows who he is, everyone knows the challenges and things that have gone on. Uh, others are the California Attorney General Xavier Becerra, who will lead the Health and Human Services Department. Uh, again, someone that has been a key member of this advisory group and will continue on in leading this very critical agency uh, at this time. Another is Jeff Zients, the veteran of the Obama administration, who will be the White House coordinator of the coronavirus response. And then also Vivek Murthy, a key coronavirus advisor to the president-elect as Surgeon General. Uh, so this is part of that team, and I just I focus on this for just a moment, uh, just simply because these are names, people you've already seen on the news, they've been on with news conferences, people that you will probably see on a regular basis, you'll see their names in the media, because they are going to be advising the president uh, and, and trying to implement the policies uh, that, that he wants and the directive that he wants in order to curb the impact of the pandemic and to address it in a, in a very, uh, as effective way as possible. Uh, so, so there's others here. I would encourage you, I'll post an article on Facebook that goes over the, the members of the health team of the administration. But as we did in talking about the economic team, I think this is a very critical group, a very important group uh, that is going to be upfront, engaged and critical in this administrative efforts of the Biden administration uh, to deal with this ongoing and very pressing and challenging uh, national problem. I wanna thank you for joining us today right here on KTRL 90.5 FM. We're here each Sunday at noon. We're also available by podcast and following the show on SoundCloud. Uh, that's on politics with Eric Morrow. And please join us each week, whether you can listen to us at the time when we're on the radio or we're streaming live, or streaming the show on tarletonradio.com. Uh, but if not, after the show, you've got those options as well. Thank you again for joining us this week, and we'll look forward to more engaging conversations with experts and analysts, as well as up-to-date information on the issues that impact you. From me, Taylor Welch, and me, Carissa Cole. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.